Again, if you don't have your Bibles open already, I invite you to turn them to Acts chapter 16. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're continuing on in our study through the book of Acts. And you may be wondering, well, if today is such a special Sunday, the day that you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, why are you in Acts? What does Philippi have to do with Calvary? And I'm glad you asked. I want to suggest that it has everything to do with the resurrection. Our passage today is entirely dependent on the resurrection of Jesus. I had a friend ask me one time, we were riding in a car together. He asked me, he said, what is Jesus doing in heaven? This question took me back and I had to ask some more questions to say, what do you mean by that question? He said, you know, what, what is Jesus doing in heaven? You know, I, I know what he did on earth. You guys keep telling me about that, but what is he doing in heaven? So after talking with my friend, I came to realize my friend's understanding of what Jesus was doing in heaven was kind of like what Mary Poppins was doing on the clouds, just, just hanging out. And Jesus was almost asleep or almost bored in heaven. And again, we might chuckle at my friend's question, but if we're honest, maybe we've had that same question too. What is Jesus doing in heaven? We've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We can read about what he did on earth, that's clear, but after the resurrection, I mean, what is Jesus really doing? Our passage today gives us insight to that question. The resurrection of Christ is one of the two most important events in all of human history. Of course, the first being his death on the cross. But Jesus' resurrection from the dead is not just a historical event. Although there is enough historical evidence for it that even non-Christian scholars don't even dispute the question. Jesus was dead and he was resurrected. It is a historical reality. But the resurrection of Jesus has ongoing significance for your life this morning. Like a stone dropped in water, sending ripples out to the edge of the banks. So the resurrection of Jesus has ripples spanning human history. Jesus' ministry did not cease with his resurrection. Jesus is very active in heaven. And from heaven, Jesus, along with the Father, sent down the Holy Spirit. And Jesus continues his ministry through the Holy Spirit. And so as we see the Holy Spirit work, we are in fact seeing Christ work. Jesus, together with the Holy Spirit, directs, saves, strengthens, and transforms His people. That's my outline this morning. The first point, Jesus, the risen Christ, directs His people. The risen Christ directs His people. You see this clearly in verses 6-10. through 10. Paul and Silas, they start out on their second missionary journey. They passed through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. 
With the first journey already complete, the, the next logical step is, well, let's break new ground. We've already covered this area. Let's go to a new area. That's exactly what they tried to do. But they were prevented. And Luke wants us to see that it was God who prevented them. It was the Holy Spirit who did not allow them to preach in Asia. We're told that Asia was a wealthy region. It was highly civilized. And God said, not yet. So they traveled again to another place called Mysia. And there they attempted to go to Bithynia. And Bithynia was in northern Turkey. And it was a, a senatorial province. Again, it was an important intellectual place. Luke tells us that the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to speak there. God was preventing Paul and his companions from speaking in these places. So being frustrated a second time, they traveled to another city, Troas. And while in Troas, Paul has his famous vision. He sees a man from Macedonia calling out and saying, come, come help us. And Luke tells us that immediately we sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there. Luke, the, the author of the book of Acts, now is in the journey. He's traveling with Paul. We're getting a first-hand account of these stories. The risen Christ directs his people. Twice Paul and his companions are prevented from going to strategic places with the gospel. And it is God through the Spirit of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, who then directs his people to the places that he wants them to go. Notice how God directs his people in this passage. God directs his people through denial and discernment, through closing doors and opening doors, through circumstances and careful consideration. Asia and Bithynia, they, they made sense. They would have been our choice of where to go next. But God had other plans. So God appeared to Paul in this vision. But notice that the vision alone isn't what propels them to go to Macedonia. Paul doesn't say, I've had this vision and I'm running this way and no one can stop me. Don't dare get in my way. Luke tells us that there was a decision. They made a conclusion. They had spiritual discernment about their circumstances. We're looking at the closed doors and looking at the vision and holding these things together saying, well, I think God wants us to go to Macedonia then. We thought it was these other places, but I think this is, in fact, what God's doing. Friends, is this not how God still works in the lives of His people? Through closing those doors that you think are just certain and opening those ones that you could have never imagined. Maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself getting tossed out at sea, trying to figure out, where am I supposed to go? Take comfort, the risen Christ directs His people. The resurrection of Jesus proclaims loudly to God's people that God will never forsake His people. 
And so the Spirit of Jesus directs Paul and his companions to Macedonia so that they would preach the gospel there. And Jesus saves his people by directing his people so that they can then go and preach the gospel. The risen Christ directs his people and saves his people. You see this in verses 11 through 15. The risen Christ saves his people. Paul and his companions, they arrive in Philippi. And Philippi was, we're told, a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and it was a Roman colony. As a Roman colony, Philippi had certain privileges that other cities didn't have. It was settled by veteran Roman soldiers, and so they had the privilege of self-government. It was also a tax-free city. Philippi sounds like a pretty good place to live. Self-government, tax-free. This is a slice of paradise in Macedonia at that time. After arriving in Philippi, Paul and Silas, they travel outside of the city to a place of prayer. Luke tells us that there are women gathered at this place of prayer. And one of the women gathered at this prayer meeting was a lady named Lydia. We're told that she was from Thyatira, which is a city in Asia Minor or Turkey. This is one of those places that God had forbidden them to speak the gospel in the early part of the chapter. And Lydia is a seller of purple goods. Purple goods in the ancient world was a sign of royalty, a sign of wealth. Combine that with the fact that Luke mentions her by name and we're given the indication that Lydia was a very successful businesswoman. She had a particular reputation for being a good businesswoman. And so she was at this prayer meeting and she's hearing Paul talk about Jesus. Given the, the likelihood that the women gathered were primarily Jews, Paul probably started his sermon in the Old Testament, as we've seen him do before. Going back to creation, saying God created Adam and Eve. And rather than listening to God, Adam and Eve decided to listen to the voice of the serpent. They disobeyed God, and so God cursed them. He banished them from the garden. I'm sure then Paul would say something like, but even in the midst of that curse, God made a promise. He promised that there would be strife, but there would be someone to come from the line of Eve, to come from her seed, and that he would crush the head of the serpent. So the rest of the Old Testament is God explaining who that one would be, who that child would be, what he would do and who he would be. And so by the time you get to Matthew chapter 1, the very beginning of the New Testament, the expectation and anticipation was ripe. Who is this child? They were looking for someone who would sit on the throne of David. They were looking for a king. And they were looking for someone who would fulfill God's law perfectly. And they were looking for someone who would deliver them from their slavery. And as Paul's 
preaching. He's explaining to the women gathered that this Jesus that you've heard about, he's the one who fulfills what was promised in the Old Testament. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus lived the life that they were supposed to live. Jesus lived the life that you were supposed to live. The only perfect man to ever live, and yet he was betrayed and he was hung on a cross. He was condemned as a criminal. And God put on him the iniquity of us all. And as Jesus hung on that tree, which we remembered on Friday, as Jesus hung on that tree, God poured out His wrath and judgment against sin. And after He died on that tree, some of His followers took Him and put Him in a grave. They rolled a tomb over. They set guards in front of it. And as Randy read for us at the beginning of our service, that isn't the end of the story. That's why we're here today. Because God raised Jesus from the dead. The God-man could not be held by death. God found Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to be sufficient. When Jesus was on the cross as He was dying, He said, it is finished. And when God raised Jesus from the grave, God said, it is indeed finished. This is who Paul was telling these women about. And as Lydia was listening, God opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. Friends, this is the supernatural work of God in salvation. That God takes dead, hard, sinful human hearts and He breathes His life into them. He gives them new hearts. He does this through the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, that these things, these gospel truths, who Jesus is, what He did, these things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Or Jesus illustrates it this way in Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes out and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Friends, Jesus is the treasure in that field. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to give you the eyes to see what's in that field. When you see Jesus as the loveliest person the most beautiful treasure in all the world. You sell everything that you might know Him and Him alone. Lydia found the greatest good of all. She found Jesus as Paul was preaching to her and as God opened her heart. you imagine that conversation when she returned back to Thyatira, where she was from? Hey, Lydia, how was your trip to Philippi? Are you able to sell some of your goods and make a profit? Are you able to find something else maybe that you could incorporate into your booming business? Oh, it was an amazing trip to Philippi. Let me tell you all about it. I found the greatest 
good in all the world. It's more valuable than any piece of purple cloth I've ever sold. His name is Jesus. He's forgiven my sins. He's made me new. Let me tell you all about him. Friends, Jesus is the greatest good. He is the supreme treasure in all the world. He is the one who has conquered death. He's infinitely better than all the other fields on this earth. Have you met this beautiful Jesus? The risen Christ directs his people. And the risen Christ saves his people. He also strengthens his people. The risen Christ strengthens his people. You see this in verses 16 through 25. As Paul and his companions were again going on another day to the same place of prayer, they're then followed by this woman who's been possessed by a demon and who has been enslaved by men in the city. She would make her owner's money by predicting the future. People would come to her and questions. She would give them answers from the future and she would collect a profit and give it to her owners. In verse 18, Paul tells us, or Luke tells us that Paul became greatly annoyed with this girl. And so he cast her demon out. The question remains, why did Paul get annoyed with her? I mean, wasn't she just telling people in the city what they were doing? She's telling people in the city, hey, these men are servants of the Most High God proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Why would Paul get annoyed at that? That's what they were doing in Philippi. That was their business. God had sent them there to preach. In the Gospels, Jesus regularly had encounters with demons. And those demons would correctly identify him as the Son of God. I think the demon in our passage knew who Paul and his companions were. I think the demon rightly identified them as servants of the Most High God. But I think there's more to the story. In the Roman Empire... You were allowed to worship multiple gods or goddesses. If you're familiar with Greek or Roman mythology, you're familiar with some of these gods that were worshipped in various cities. And so in a culture that was polytheistic and had lots of gods that were totally acceptable to worship, how did you distinguish the god that the Jews talked about versus the god of the rest of the empire? Well, they did that through the title, the Most High God. And again, within Roman religion, the way of salvation was commonplace. That was the goal of all of these gods or goddesses, to help you find the way of salvation. Their definition of the way of salvation was radically different than what Paul and what the Bible understands to be the way of salvation their way of salvation was you take a little bit of money, you go to the temple, you pay, you make a vow, and you tell God or the gods whatever it is you plan to do, and then that's your path of salvation. You then follow that path. 
You go to God and you tell God what you'll do for him and then you'll find your salvation. That is not the message that Paul was preaching in Philippi. The message that Paul was preaching is not what you can do for God, but what God has done for you. And so rather than falling down before Paul and Silas, like demons do to Jesus, the demon seeks to distort the message by causing the woman to cry out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. On her lips, Paul and the gospel he's preaching would have been confused. It would have been lumped in with this large pool of idols. And so Paul's annoyance is over the confusion being cast upon the beautiful message of the gospel. That's why he cast the demon out. And the owners of this demon-possessed woman realize that their means of profit has just vanished. And so they bring charges before the authorities against Paul and Silas. Again, sensing that their culture of being self-governed and tax-free, these beautiful benefits of being a citizen of Philippi, They felt those to be threatened. And so they beat and imprisoned Paul and Silas. Luke tells us that while they were in prison, they were praying and singing hymns to God. With their beaten backs against a rock wall, their feet shackled, they are praying and singing hymns to God. Friends, this is the supernatural work of God where he strengthens his people. The risen Christ strengthens his people to sing even in these horrible circumstances. They sing because Jesus is risen. Because Jesus is risen, Jesus now makes intercession for his people. The author of Hebrews tells us that that is part of what he's doing in heaven as he's always pleading the case of his people in heaven. Their faith in this prison cell does not fail because Jesus is alive. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, bears witness within our spirit that we are children of God. He cries out within believers saying, Abba, Father. And so he ends Romans 8 by saying, what then shall we say to these things? What then are we to say to the fact that we've just been falsely accused, wrongfully beaten, unjustly imprisoned? What are we to say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? These magistrates in Philippi? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees the hope of heaven for God's children. And so we sing. 
We've seen God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Paul writes, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor power nor height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, the tomb is empty, so we sing with joy. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Jesus is alive. No one will separate God from his children. This is how Christ strengthens his people. The risen Christ directs, saves, strengthens, and transforms his people. You see this in, again in verse 25 through the end of the chapter. As they're singing and praying and others are listening, there's an earthquake that shakes the foundations of the prison. The doors are open, the shackles have been broken. The jailer wakes up and realizes the door's open. And so he draws his own sword. You see the death penalty in that day for a jailer who could not keep the prisoner's lock secure was the death penalty. And so Paul says, wait, don't do that. We're all here. No one's escaped. So the jailer comes to Paul and Silas. No doubt the jailer had at this point heard of their reputation. These are the new folks in town. They're preaching some different message of salvation. Of a God who's unlike any other God in the Roman Empire. And now there's this earthquake. The jailer knows there's something different here. And so he comes and he asks... What must I do to be saved? Their answer is remarkably simple. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's it. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Notice what they didn't say though. They didn't say, Acknowledge the Lord Jesus. They said, believe. A saving faith involves trusting Jesus, not merely acknowledging that He exists. You could say, Jesus died for sinners, and that's a true statement. But friends, even the demons can make that statement. Jesus died for my sins. That. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. 
They say, believe in the Lord Jesus. True belief realizes that Jesus is not only the Savior of the world, that He died for your sins, but true belief is also recognizing that He is Lord over the earth. The resurrection of Jesus puts Him in a category that no one else occupies. He is Lord over all, including your life, including my life. Believing in Jesus does not make Him Lord over all. But it does mean that you recognize Him as Lord and you humbly submit to His Lordship. To believe that Jesus is Lord is to joyfully seek to live your entire life for His glory. Your greatest joy, your greatest desire, your ultimate aim is to live as Jesus says to live. When Lydia saw Jesus is more lovely than anything else, when you see Jesus is more lovely than anything else, obeying his commandments is simply the path to greater joy, to greater happiness. And you see this transforming effect of believing in Jesus immediately take place in the prison. The jailer, after hearing the offer of salvation, he says, I I want my family to hear this good news. So he gets Paul and Silas before his family and Paul and Silas proclaim the message of salvation to his family as well. He begins to wash the wounds of Paul and Silas. His first concern is not whether or not he's going to die, whether the authorities are going to punish him. His concern is for his new brothers in Christ and their wounds and caring for them. He and his family are immediately baptized. They want to be publicly identified with Jesus and his people. And then the jailer prepares a meal for Paul and Silas. He wants to show his new brothers in Christ hospitality. He wants to break bread with them. And this is the theme in Acts. When the gospel penetrates your heart, you long to be with God's people. You long to have fellowship with them, to break bread with them. In case you haven't noticed, we'll be breaking bread together after this service. Some of you are saying, hurry up, I'm ready to get there. The jailer has fellowship with Paul and Silas. You see, I I love my wife, Joni. I love her dearly. But if you were to come to my house and you were to never observe me do anything that matched that profession, Joni, I love you, you would come to my house and you would never see me do anything that would demonstrate the reality that I do in fact love her, well, maybe the first time you might give me the benefit of the doubt, but over time you're going to begin to wonder, do you really love your wife? The answer is yes, I love my wife. So I joyfully wash her dishes after she joyfully cooks our meals. So it is in the Christian faith. 
To believe in Jesus is to follow him. To love Jesus is to obey his commands. After Paul and Silas are released, they go and visit Lydia and the brothers. This is the beginning of the infant church of Philippi, where Paul would later write the letter of Philippians to. Lydia and her household, the jailer in his household that we know of, perhaps there's others. But you see, the two different people from two different social classes. And previously, they had, had no business being together. A woman who's a successful businesswoman and a worker for the Roman government. Their past didn't cross, and now they're gathered together, worshiping together, because Christ has transformed them. And so the question remains for us Do you know Jesus? Or do you know about Jesus? Eternity depends on the answer to that question. Do you know Jesus or do you know about Jesus? The resurrection of Jesus is the most earth-shattering event in all of history. Everything hangs on Jesus truly being raised from the dead. For Christians, your entire salvation depends on it. Your coming to faith, your being strengthened in the faith and your hope of heaven is dependent on the empty tomb. The resurrection proclaims that for his children, God will never leave them. He will never forsake them. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, then hear God speak to you. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Don't be like the slave owners and the magistrates. They love their money, their supposed freedom and their lifestyle. Their identity was wrapped up in their job. It was wrapped up in where they were from, what they were able to do. And they missed the great news of the resurrection of Jesus. Money, pleasure, politics, they're terrible gods. They don't have your best interest in heart, at heart. In fact, they want to see your destruction. Believe in the Lord Jesus who died on a cross and was resurrected. Let's pray.